0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. Sherry, I don't know if you know this about us here at the Intoxicated Podcast, but we have a very strict rule. I looked it up. You, We will not have a repeat guest... Within the same 153 episodes. <laughs> you have to go, we have to go have 153 to episodes 150 before we have Strict a Strict yes. huh? Yeah. Okay. So I have been waiting, like every week, are we at 153 yet? I have been waiting <laughs> and excited to have our good friend Kelly Miller back, well known to Untoxicated Podcast longtime listeners from episode four way back, I don't know, what was that, three years ago, something like that? I don't know something it's, like that.
1: I wasn't even on it, so yeah, I
0: don't know. You were like, what are you and that Jason guy yeah. going off and doing <laughs> what
1: are you guys doing What's a podcast?
0: <laughs> but here she is. It's episode 157 and Kelly Miller is back. Thanks for being here today, Kelly.
2: Thank you for having me. So you're saying I'm the first repeat guest.
0: Uh, I'm probably wrong. I say all kinds of things where I'm wrong. <laughs> there is no uh, I know, checking. I know here. Jason was originally the host and then he came on as a guest. So if you count that, okay. he was a repeat. And we've had some like individual guests that are, have also been in like groups. Like when we okay. did the echoes of yeah, recovery yeah, retreat, so some yeah, of those yeah, people yeah. had been solos. But I think other than that, yeah, I think you're the first, the first repeat yeah, guest. I think
2: I I'm very honored to be the first. Potentially repeat (laughs) guest.
0: For the first potentially. We don't actually know, but I'm going
2: to roll with it. Maybe, but
0: probably not. (laughs) Repeat guest. Still aren't. Well, your message is so important in in the way of formal introduction so that people will know why we're so excited to have you back. You are a nutrition therapist and recovery coach. Your business is The Addiction Nutritionist and your website, which a brand spanking new, new and improved version of your website is coming very shortly. Yes. Maybe right when this is released, maybe just after this is released. Yeah. So if you visit and it's not quite there yet, come back and see it again. The website is the com. And your message, your mission is so important that you know, we all the time, honestly, Kelly, all the time are referring people back to episode 4. You got to go listen to episode 4. Mm-hmm. But you know, we want to I think we've got some new topics to discuss, but also we want to refresh and just re-hit right. the main points of what we talked about way back then because it's it's just that important to recovery and as we're going to discuss today, not just the recovery of people who are directly suffering from addiction, but the people who are indirectly suffering as well, the spouses, the other loved ones. There is a ton in the work that you do for them as well. And To me, it's one of those things that, and I want to get your impression on this, it's one of these things where you know we say things like, we need to get out in nature, we need to exercise, we need to get eight hours of sleep. We say these things, but in the hustle and bustle of the busy life, and especially if you're dealing with addiction or recovery from addiction, these are the things (laughs) that get kind of pushed to the side when the rubber meets the road and you know, there's kids that have to be tended to and work and all of that. Um, I think nutrition falls into that category. We give lip service to the fact that it's important, but then in reality, we swing through the McDonald's drive-thru. Is, what's your impression of that statement? Do you, do you see that? Do you, do you see people acknowledging importance but not living in importance?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I see consistently in this world and just the world in general people not living out their values and that creates a ton of tension in someone's life. I mean, I personally experienced that for a long time, Um, but we, this modern lifestyle that we have, it's not sustainable in a lot of ways, Mm. and it's kind of crazy that we are all just doing it anyway, Um, and you've got, you know, rogue people that are talking about the four-day work week and this and that, and I think that that's all revolutionary and amazing stuff, Um, but for the far majority of people, we are grinding and grinding and grinding, Mm. and our biology is not meant to do that. At all, so we end up living in a completely reactive state. We're just reacting all the time. Um, you know, a lot of people have heard the term "lizard brain," which I absolutely love. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to say it, but we we are acting off of our instincts all the time. You, and whether it's like what we're drinking, what we're eating, what we're thinking, what we're doing, um, and so whether somebody's in recovery, not in recovery, the loved one of a recovery, I think everyone would be benefited from examining their life and how reactive it is because if you can bring self-awareness to how reactive your life is you can start to take steps to become more resilient and not react and respond right to totally different things um so yeah i mean great example with the mcdonald's for sure but
0: yeah yeah i just i think people are going to look at this episode and go oh yeah that's something. Maybe I'll get to that mm-hmm. eventually. You know, once once I fix all my problems, then I'll worry about what I'm eating. Mm-hmm. Then I'll worry about how the connection between food and biology. You know, that it, almost treating it like it's the cherry on top, as opposed to it's foundational. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, what what you eat determines who you are in in many ways. And I know I was one of those people that um, didn't treat it with the didn't treat my my inputs with the respect that they deserved, and how surprising is that? I was uh, an alcoholic, right? So I was willing to put poison into my body. Why would I not also be willing to put nachos into my body at two o'clock in the morning? I mean, that's not surprising at all. Yeah. Let's let's back up, and so we we've, we've set the stage for how important this is, regardless of where you are in the alcoholism and recovery cycle. Regardless of what your role is, let's talk a little bit about your personal experience, if you don't mind, Kelly. Tell us not only how you got into this line of work, um, where your passion comes from, but but what has led you here uh, from a personal life standpoint?
2: Yeah, so it feels like a long story, so I'll try to just give the headlines, but basically... When I was a young girl, my brother, my older brother got really sick um, with leukemia and that had a major impact on our family and he passed away when I was seven years old. He was a teenager. Um, And those are the first memories I have of standing in my kitchen in front of the refrigerator and having this battle with myself in terms of, knowing that I had already had something and maybe I shouldn't have another, but I really wanted to. And it, it was as simple as like Yoo-Hoo's, you know, those chocolate oh, drinks. Yeah. It was yoo It was um, English muffins with butter and jam. And it was just like simple stuff that kids would eat, right? You used a term a long time ago that ha- that I use all the time. You said mental gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it was in a blog or something, but I, I think about that all the time because it perfectly depicts the battle that started at that time in my life and then for decades forward. So those are the first memories I have of sort of having an internal struggle with food. And that was really what laid the groundwork for addictions that I developed later in life. My family, it it was the eighties. We weren't talking about processing things in a healthy, emotional way. So we did the best that we could. But there was definitely um, a deeper need that I had at that time and for many years to come to be able to process the loss of my brother. Oh, sure. So I turned to food. I turned to sugar and bread and did that for years and years. And then in my teenage years, I started smoking. Um, And there had always been a question about, does Kelly have learning disabilities? Does Kelly have ADD or ADHD? And they actually did some testing for me in elementary school and basically said, yeah, you know, it looks like there's some underlying learning difficulties, but we're not going to like diagnose her with anything. Well, I did have ADD and a big, um, you know, one of the hallmark symptoms for somebody who has ADD is uh, struggling to bring dopamine to the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and to be able to call it up when it's needed. Um, and so when I start, first started smoking at a high school football game when I was 14 years old, it was instant. I was instantly hooked. Within three days, I had learned how to inhale. Um, I remember that vividly. Mm. And I was like, this is what I've been missing my whole life. Because it gave life. you the dopamine. It gave me that focus, that quick little buzz in the front of my brain that made me feel normal. Um, and so I started smoking, quickly developed into um, you know, a chronic smoker. Drank in high school socially and recreationally, but then when I was 19 got involved in a really bad relationship. It was my first, like, this is my first relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, we're in love, whatever. Um, it was an abusive relationship. It was highly toxic. And that was when everything changed for me in terms of my relationship with alcohol. I stopped drinking socially to get drunk and to ease social anxiety and more to just cope with the stress of life. And that pattern, um, went on for a long time, you know? Um, and so the thing, my biggest takeaway from that whole experience is that, I had that huge tension I was carrying around with me since the age of seven. Right. Right? Like, I've had four cookies, but why do I want more? Do I have another cookie? Should I not have another cookie? Like, and then it was like cigarettes. Like, oh my gosh, this is like the ball and chain. I cannot break free from this nicotine addiction. It was so unbelievably intense for me. And then alcohol. Why do I keep going back to alcohol? And why is it the first thing that comes to mind when I'm sad, when I'm anxious, when I'm stressed? Um, and and I didn't want to live that way, but I could not for the life of me figure out how to break free from those things. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, I haven't had a puff of a cigarette in eight years. Um, in November, I'll have my eight year nicotine free anniversary. Um, it's been three years and about nine months um, that I've had a drink of alcohol. Um, and the, but the food, it was the food that took me there first. I conquered my food issues before all of that. Um, and it was because I got really sick when I was 30 with autoimmune disorder. And that's what led me into the world of nutrition. Um, and so we can, you know, I can expand on that if well, you want. But... Well,
0: first I want to hit on alcohol. Mm-hmm. You said three years mm-hmm. or nine months. Mm-hmm. Now, Sherry and I have known you for many more years than that. Yeah. Um, our, for, for just a little personal insight for our listeners, we met because our kids went to pre-K together. Mm-hmm. That's how we originally met. And... When you talk about you've been three years and nine months without a drink, you never had what we would view as a typical addiction to alcohol. You you weren't drinking yourself till you pass out every night. And, you know, it it wasn't uh, spending every last penny at the liquor store. It wasn't like that. Um, So I think it's very interesting that you highlight the importance for you of getting alcohol out of your life. You know, I we talk to people all the time who compare themselves to gutter drunks and say, "I'm not that bad, so I can keep drinking." But for you, it wasn't even close to being anything like that. But it was st- still causing you harm and wasn't helping you, and you decided to get it out of your life. Am I? Representing that properly?
2: Absolutely. The first time that we did this podcast, I was still drinking. And I felt I had imposter syndrome. Really? Because I knew on some level that alcohol was a problem for me, but I could not, for the life of me, define it. I couldn't define it. I couldn't figure it out. So
0: if you couldn't call yourself an alcoholic, you couldn't figure out why you should quit.
2: Yes. It was so frustrating. And then I don't know where I heard it, but I heard the term gray area drinker. Mm -hmm. And it it was probably, you know, through a connection with Jolene. Jolene, yeah. And... It was like the light bulbs went off and I was because I I've never had a physical dependence on alcohol never a physical addiction I guess I would say, but I absolutely had an emotional dependence on it. I had an emotional mm, addiction to yeah. it. stress bubbled up. My it's brain said a red line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a crutch um, and, and it was it was that it was figuring out that I wasn't laying in the gutter and i didn't need to be to have a problem right. with alcohol. You know, when i read Annie Grace's book, that was a huge, you know, thing for me, you and just the work that you've done. At that point, i mean, i remember sitting in that room and and doing that podcast with you and thinking, do i need to do i need to stop drinking? Really? I'm not an alcoholic, but do i need to stop? And it was that same year, like 12 months later that i did. So that whole year i spent thinking about it.
0: And are, are you glad that you did? A hundred percent. How has it helped? How has it changed?
2: It's changed everything because it gave me the space that I needed to learn to process what does stress feel like? What are the bad behaviors for me that are connected to when stress bubbles up? And it forced me to sit in all of those uncomfortable moments and feelings and the self-awareness that I had to, to have and explore and develop has been life-changing. I mean, it it started out as, I'm not going to quit alcohol. I'm going to give it up for a year. And then I'm going to reassess exactly 12 months later. And up until the night before, I didn't know what I was going to do. Really? I didn't know what I was going to do. And that day arrived and I was like, what are you thinking? Like, you've had a hard year, but one of the most enlightening years of your life. Why would you do this again? And so, even at that moment, I said, "I'll go another year." Hmm. And so, and now, I still, I still don't want to sit here and say, "Matt, I'm never going to have a drink of alcohol for the rest of my life." I'm not comfortable saying that um, for so many different reasons. But what I can say is that I'm going to nail that five-year mark, and I can't wait to get there. And I, I already know once I get there, I'm not going to drink again. But there's something weird about me needing to say. Like, okay, maybe at that point I'll go, I can't wait to get to 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. But it still has that pull, the red wine. Yeah.
0: That's fascinating. And I think on that timing thing, I, you know, I've met so many people for whom um, permanence is just too big. Saying forever is just too big. Mm -hmm. And then I've met a lot of people, probably an equal number, close, who are more like me for whom one day at a time that doesn't that doesn't work for me to get up every day and make a decision again that today I'm not going to drink that does. And so permanence is my crutch. And I just think it's fascinating that, that there are those two different mindsets and probably lots of gray area in between speaking of gray area. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. That's another oldie, but a goodie. We had Jolene Park who we were referencing on the, uh, the podcast back shortly after you, it's, it's maybe not, Uh, in the single digits but it's one of the early episodes so if listeners are really intrigued Mm -hmm. by what kelly's talking about about gray area drinking uh, we recommend you search the podcast for i believe that was the the title of the podcast was gray area drinking with jolene park
1: well i remember lots of conversations based around the gray area drinking and i think a lot of us loved ones of alcoholics Or we're so disgusted with alcohol, but then sometimes we use it as a crutch or like, I just got to escape this for a moment. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, occasionally I would be like, well, I'm just going to have, you know, something to drink if Matt's going to be drunk all night long. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that always seemed to really turn out much worse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because then you'd be like, oh, she's ready to party. (laughs) you know
0: there aren't many situations that alcohol actually helps yeah so not surprising that that would turn yeah, out so worse. so i think
1: that's a that's a good one to visit like you said you yeah. just wanted to really kind of let your mind be clear and evaluate and understand and process your own emotions yeah so i think, And that's
2: the other side of the coin for me is i i am codependent <laughs> i'm working on my bachelor's in addiction counseling right now. And I, my class is family recovery and we're learning all about boundaries and codependency. And so it's been a long journey of realizing my codependency traits as well. Cause I have loved ones. I've had former relationships and, and a lot of loved ones that have been addicts. Um, and I can see those patterns. And so I think that was the other side of the coin. Like I was dealing with my own trauma, my own emotional maladaptive coping mechanisms. But part of that was just me trying to deal with, being a codependent and not even knowing it,
0: too. Are you okay with the term? A lot of people push back and don't like the word codependent. You know
2: what? Uh, one of the reasons I didn't originally like it is because I feel like people force it on you. Okay. Like, oh, you're codependent. As and though so, you,
0: you've done something yeah, wrong to cause like the drink My to the drink.
2: actions are, like, causing this other part. Mm-hmm. like, and it really pissed me off. Mm-hmm. I've come to the place that I don't think anybody should ever force any label on anybody. I don't think people should say, you're an alcoholic. You're a codependent. Like, screw that. Like, people need to figure out their own journeys. And if I want to say I'm codependent, then who are you to tell me I'm not? (laughs) Um, Because obviously, if I'm claiming that, um, it's doing something for me, you know? And I... Am a, I'm not a big fan of labels in general. If people get stuck there and use it as their identity, yeah. I don't walk around going, I'm a codependent. I'm not a victim of anything. I am not. I'm, I'm not a fan of the victim mentality. But learning what that is and what those, those traits are has been really enlightening for me in a well, lot of ways with my kids, mm-hmm. um, everybody in my life.
0: I couldn't agree more that it's got to be a self-diagnosis. It's got to be something that you choose to own or you choose not to own. But when you do, you just, you take a very stigmatized word and you destigmatize it when you own it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is somebody going to do? Accuse you of being a codependent when you've just called yourself one? I mean, there's no, (laughs) there's no more. It
2: takes the power away. Yeah, it
0: takes the power away. So I just wanted to get your take on that because I know that's a, a popular kind of topic in the recovery community, um, the the stigmatization of that word. So let's bridge the gap where we were to the work that you're doing today. You started exploring nutrition because of your own, you said, autoimmune Mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. What did you find?
2: So I ended up developing three different autoimmune issues. People always want me to say what they are, too, so I might as well just say it. It started with Hashimoto's disease, it turned into fibromyalgia, and then endometriosis, which is not classified as autoimmune currently, but I believe it will be someday. And uh, that, that whole experience, I won't go into the details of it, but it was horrific. And so I, I, and the doctors, unfortunately, conventional medicine has not caught up with chronic disease and they are like, eh, take a pill, don't take a pill, we really can't do anything for you. Mm. So that put me in the world of, well, I've got to figure this out on my own. I was certainly not going to lay down and die. And it felt like I was dying already. And so I just started reading testimonials on the internet of people that were literally me, like same aged women, same age symptoms, diagnosis is all of this. And it said, this is what helped me heal. And it was all nutrition and lifestyle. So I was like, I've got, this is my best shot. And so I went into that world. I started cleaning up my diet, um, learning everything that I could and just experimenting on myself. And the purpose was to relieve my symptoms from autoimmune. And, and that is what happened. But the side effect that I never saw coming was the mood stabilization that mm-hmm. I experienced from that. It laid the groundwork for me to be able to quit smoking. I was smoking, <laughs> trying to recover from autoimmune disorder, knowing knowing that I needed to quit smoking. But the food felt like a better place to start for me. And, and so that's where I started. But when I did that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I think I can actually quit smoking now. And it was as simple as, like, giving up gluten. I mean, that was the very first thing that I did. I think I'm coming up on nine years because I gave up gluten a year before I was able to quit smoking. Um, But that was a huge addiction for me. And then, like, I learned all the biochemistry between, you know, between what gluten can do for certain people. Um, Not everybody. Lots of people can eat it and tolerate it. But there's also a lot of us who cannot. And
0: that's what's so challenging maybe about your profession or... um... Not confusing, but because there are so many different body types and brain chemistry types, there's no one size fits all, right? Yeah. So that's what makes it difficult and challenging. Probably yeah, exactly. exciting. Well, I was like going to say,
2: like, actually, it's more fun. Yeah. Um, but I can see why some people might think it's challenging. To me, I see that challenge as like, all right, let's get into it. Yeah. You know? um, but, pe- man, people get so hung up on like... Should everybody be on a gluten free diet? Should everybody be fasting? Should everybody be doing keto? Should everybody be doing low carb? Like people get so hung up on this stuff. And it's it's so 100% about but what about you? How does your body react to foods? How does your body react to certain foods? How does your body react to going a certain period of time without eating or doing six meals or three meals or two meals? Um, and so what's right for one person may not be right for another. And that bio-individuality piece is actually one of the most exciting parts of, of my job. And I get to like demystify the myths and go, let's clear all that out of the way and talk about you and your body and how you react to things. Because that's that's where the healing is,
0: yeah. you know. Well, I, I want to just put a plug in for what you just said. I've tried pretty much everything that you've ever suggested <laughs> to me as it relates to nutrition and not just what you eat, but when you eat, how you eat. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time I've shared this with you. I don't know if you even remember, but just back this past, it was right around Easter. I had a quick 15-minute, maybe a 10-minute conversation with you about intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. And I decided to try it as a result of our conversation. And this is how I'm supposed to be. I mean, it has been really life changing. Oh, you love it. I yeah. love it. That's
1: I awesome. think he looks so much I mean, I'm not going to say anything derogatory. Sure.
0: Her stop, first compliment stop, was Stop.
1: You're not puffy. Your
0: arms are so skinny. That was her first compliment. <laughs> I'm like that's not like, really what I'm I going what for.
1: He you. you said you're slim. Like he's not puffy and bloated. I mean, and he's tried everything. I mean, he did the, you know, the dietary program that you recommend for early sobriety. Right, right, We right. did that and he kind of led that for years and he was and he definitely sustained and had lost weight with sustained but intermittent fasting just seems to be working for But that. I think it's important to but,
2: note too that you laid the groundwork for that.
0: Yeah, I, I want to yeah. talk about that. Let's yeah. go ahead and dive in. One of the things, the cautions that you gave me on that 10 or 15 minute yeah. phone conversation was this is not good for someone in early sobriety yeah. and that relates directly to blood sugar. Mm-hmm. So I want to say why it's so great for me I just I've always been a late day eater like I want to consume all my calories then Mm -hmm. my willpower is low at the end of the day I'm tired I'm probably looking for a little bit of something to make me feel good about the stresses of the day Mm -hmm. and I would whatever my eating pattern or goal was I would cheat and break it late in the day anyway and so now that I'm you know, I usually don't start eating till 2 o'clock in the afternoon or so. And then, you know, we, Sherry and I, a lot of our work is evening related. So, I often don't eat dinner till 9 o'clock at night. And it's super satisfying. I never get cravings to eat in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's just bizarre to me, but so fascinating. And it really highlights what you said about how there's different strokes for different folks. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we're all different. Um, and you did so, this,
1: like... Five years after sobriety, so you had already eaten your nutrition plan for early sobriety of
0: well, and I still balance. eat those foods. And
1: but you, but I was going to say, but you still maintain that style of diet. Yeah,
0: yeah. But so the potential for someone who intermittent fast. So for me, let's call it uh, ten o'clock at night to two o'clock the next day, or nine o'clock at night to two o'clock the next day. I don't eat anything other than drinking black coffee the the potential damage that you can do to dysregulate your blood sugar. Can you can you talk about that and why this particular you know mode of eating is not really good for someone yeah. in early sobriety.
2: Yeah. So all those like diets I just mentioned a minute ago all have therapeutic benefit for the right person at the right time and for the right reasons. And that goes back to the bio individuality piece. Um, and the thing that I love about nutrition is that there's an art and there's a science, you know, I I love that balance between the two. And that's, this is a great conversation to have in in light of that. So I, I don't have a whole lot of like these absolute definitive rules, you know, in terms of um, eating for people in recovery, but there is a framework. That's the word I probably use the most. There's a framework for how you should eat that first one to two years. And that framework um, in that time is based off of the data that we have about how long it really takes somebody to repair potential nutrient deficiencies that have cropped up, repair uh, blood sugar imbalances that may have been pre existing to the addiction or whatever, or a result of it. Um, and how long it takes the brain and the body to recover. And it, a lot of it goes back to pause, post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And so for those first one to two years, somebody's main focus really needs to be restoring yeah, and and working on potential malnutrition. And some people, I hear this all the time, like, oh, I went to my doctor and we did a bunch of blood work and they said it was fine. Oftentimes, nutrient deficiencies are not caught on blood work. It mm. a, you actually have to be in a critical space at that point. So if somebody does say, like, "Oh, my doctor said my folate was low or my B12," it's critical at that point. Okay. Once it when it showed up on a blood test, you can be deficient for a very long time before it shows up on a blood test. And we know from the data that people in recovery, especially from alcohol, uh, because of its just widely inflammatory systemic effects, have many nutrient deficiencies. And so Re, you know, relaying that foundation, repairing those nutrient deficiencies and balancing the blood sugar really needs to be the primary work. If you take somebody in recovery that's already malnourished and their blood sugar is already off the charts and they're like, you know, three weeks out of rehab and they're like, hey, my buddy at last group said fasting's working for him. I'm going to try it. Mm-hmm. They do it. That is a huge risk. It's a huge relapse risk.
0: Because of what You're it does to the blood You're throwing
2: yourself into fight or flight. Yeah. You're kicking yourself into the part of the brain that at that time is way more powerful than your prefrontal cortex. Yeah. It's that amygdala, that instinctual brain. You have spent years repairing nutrient deficiencies, laying that groundwork, you know, healing and restoring the body. So you are probably at a place where you are primed and ready for that fasting, and it's worked for you. And that's that's the best experiment of all, right? You tried it when you were ready. You did it for the right reasons, and it's worked out great. Um, but it's important to know that there's a lot of people out there that really probably should not do it yet if they want to.
0: So my, if I'm understanding, my body is. I guess, healthy enough at this point that for the period when I'm not eating my blood sugar, I'm using reserves, and my blood sugar is not dropping down into a dangerous place that throws you from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala. Correct? Yeah. yeah there's and if you're in early sobriety, that's that's the danger, that your, your body's not regulating itself and your blood sugar will drop. Yes. And when you go into the amygdala and you go into fight or flight, our brains associate alcohol with survival to yes. some degree. Yes. And so you might be at the liquor store at 11 o'clock in the morning and not even have any idea how you got there or why you're there. But, and
2: I have heard that story yeah. play out. And I've heard that story end tragically.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it was only
2: just a few years ago that somebody that I know committed suicide. And it was one of those situations where they hadn't eaten. I don't want to speak you know, to the specific specifics, but I've heard this story play out over and over again. Right. You know, I had a young man, um, in group one day who told me he was uh, doing a really, he was playing basketball with his friends and it was like, it was a hard, hot day and he, they had been playing for a long time and he relapsed right after that game and he couldn't figure out why. And it's because he didn't eat before he played that game and his blood sugar dropped and he went into that kind of disassociative state where he's operating out of fight or flight, which again, in early recovery, that part of your brain is strong. It has been leading you through life for a long time. And just like a muscle, you've got to work that prefrontal cortex like a muscle and get it stronger. And that's what you really got to work on. Um, But it all comes down to that metabolic flexibility too. So you were at a place where you had done the work to to heal the body, and, and your body was probably ready to explore uh, more metabolic flexibility, which means you can tap into two different reserves very easily for a backup energy source for somebody that's in early recovery, maybe they've been hypoglycemic for a while they completely live on sugar or alcohol right they're getting primarily their energy from alcohol their body doesn't have that metabolic flexibility. so when that blood sugar drops in a healthy person that has the flexibility it's it's a seamless flow. you don't even notice that your body just switches over to fat reserves. But in early recovery, it's like boom! I'm dizzy, I'm shaky, I'm tired, I'm hangry. It's like an emergency, you know? Like light sirens are going off in the body, um, and that's that's a dangerous place to be when you don't have the stable footing of recovery underneath you yet.
0: And just to drive that home, I can remember times in early recovery where I could I could feel that that was happening, and it was I, I didn't it was before I knew you, and I didn't know any of this stuff. But I could feel that I needed to consume something. And luckily, I, I got so used to that feeling that I was aware that, that food would curb that. And so I didn't... You know, my relapses were more long-term. I didn't have the... I end up in the liquor store parking lot and I don't know how I get there. Although I hear that story a ton. So I know that that's a real thing. But I would eat when I would feel that. But it's, it's like I'd get shaky and I wouldn't be thinking clearly. And I didn't know what to call that. I didn't understand that my that I was in this fight-or-flight situation, but I knew to eat to make it go away. And now, from all that I've learned from you and the work that we've done together, I've learned that that's blood sugar. That's fascinating. Yeah.
2: There was a study that came out a long time ago by Dr. Joan Matthews Larson that looked at the uh, prevalence of hypoglycemia among alcoholics, and I can't remember exactly, but it was well <laughs> over 75%. Um, And there's been other studies that put it more at 85 to 95%, um, but hypoglycemia, which is not a disease or a disorder, it's just dysregulated blood sugar, is incredibly prevalent for people who have an alcohol use disorder.
0: Does the alcohol use disorder cause the hypoglycemia, or does hypoglycemia lead to alcohol use disorder? Both. So
2: sometimes it can be uh, existing before alcoholism develops and alcohol exacerbates it, but if you didn't go into alcoholism in that state, it can for sure um, cause it to develop.
0: While we're talking about fight or flight, I want to drive home the point that we made at the beginning that the nutrition conversation that we're having is for everyone, certainly everyone that has anything to do with alcohol or any kind of addiction and recovery One of the things that Sherry and I have really embraced or learned a lot about the last several years when we've been spending a lot of our time working with the loved ones of alcoholics, the spouses specifically, is that a lot of the spouses of alcoholics spend all their time in fight or flight, or most of their time in fight or flight. They are waiting for their spouse to come home. They're listening how their feet come across the tile floor. They can tell whether they've been drinking or not. They're worried about whether it's going to be a good night, is my drinking husband going to be you know, playful and calm, or is he going to be moody and agitated and a nightmare to live with? So they're just constantly trying to read all these signs and worried about what the next thing that happens is going to be. I can't tell you how many people we've met that talk about driving home from work themselves as the spouse of an alcoholic and getting to the driveway and not being able to get out of the car because they're so worried about what they're going to find when they go in the house, Mm -hmm. re-entering that toxic environment. And so as the loved one of an alcoholic, you spend so much time in this dysregulated nervous system state. This is directly related to what we're talking about here, right? Mm -hmm. If, If you don't take care to uh, nutritionally try to repair some of that damage that's been done, the damage is just going to continue. Am, am I saying that right?
2: Yeah, it just compounds. I mean, I, I have had that experience. It's a horrible way to live. Um, it's hard, it's excruciating. And it, and when you're in it, you, you literally just feel like your lips are above the surface of the ocean. Yeah. I mean, you're just gasping every day. Um, and there's there's so many things that somebody in that situation would need to do um to provide themselves with the self-care that they need you know to separate themselves and have proper boundaries but if they're if they're able to and it can be really challenging right like if you think of like that maslow's hierarchy thing you know it's like you've got to be able to have some basics um available to you to kind of move to the next level. And I I do see that in relationship to this. Like when you're, when you feel like you're drowning, the last thing you want to do is go, I really need to have a salad with some quality proteins today, you know? And so what, what I would say is that the most beneficial thing in that situation would be people and community finding the people and community that are willing to embark on self-care and especially nutrition and doing that together Mm, would be one of the most impactful things that somebody could do because you could help each other um, implement these kind of strategies that are not hard. They're not complex. They're simple things like getting more protein, um, but just having somebody kind of standing behind you with their hands on your back, holding you up while you're trying to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. In these really simple ways, and it goes back to that reactive state, right? Like, what can I do as a person who's in a relationship with somebody like, um, that's struggling with addiction or whatever, whoever you are, what can I do to be less reactive? So asking yourself, what areas of my life am I grabbing for the things? Am I grabbing, grabbing coffee? Cause I need energy. Am I grabbing gas station food? Because I didn't take the time to prepare something. Am I doing all of this because I don't even know what to do. Maybe I need to bring a person in to help me figure out what's the first step. Um, But yeah, if somebody is able to bring that community around them and have the the tools and, and what they need to do, it can be life changing.
0: Well, one of the things community does is help to prioritize the things that we, like we said off the top. We, in our conscious mind, we know this is important, but in reality, in that reactive state, we blow it off, yeah. like getting out in nature and getting those eight hours. I mean, yeah. if you're in fight or flight, eight hours of sleep is just a pipe dream, right? Yeah. I mean, three hours of sleep is, is yeah. a, a great night. So you lost it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I just, I, it was going to be a smooth question to oh, ask no. Kelly to kind of like promote her since she's on our podcast from point because you also are a life coach. So, like, people could reach out to you and you could help found, lay that foundation of of how to maybe start finding a community or how to start taking care of themselves. Like, do you ever find anybody who's just, like, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. Like, where? what can I even do as the loved one of someone who's, you know, addicted? Yeah. What can I do to help myself? And like you said, just talking about, like... Finding a community and basics nutrition, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And I'm I'm not a life coach. I'm a recovery coach, recovery so I coach. do okay. primarily work with people that are experiencing the addiction. But mm-hmm. I have people reach out to me all the time. It's it's usually moms. It's occasion occasionally it's spouses um, that are reaching out to me because they want to. Um, they're interested in my program for their loved one Mm -hmm. and it, and I'll tell you, it never works out. (laughs) Their loved one. I've never Mm -hmm. had a spouse or a mother come to me and we've actually been able to get somebody, um, to participate in the program. So that's always a red flag for me. And I'm always, I'm always more than happy to talk to them. And, and oftentimes what they're saying is, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I could benefit from this too. And if I just start doing it, maybe they'll start doing it. But ultimately their goal is to get that person into my program. And it's mm-hmm. never worked out.
0: You mean a person can't cure another person's addiction? I've never <laughs> heard that before. Imagine that. Yeah.
2: So, so please still call me and but, please and still and reach you. out because I'm happy
1: to talk to you. This but. is beneficial for someone who's looking at it like... Some self-care and taking care of themselves.
2: Yes. And if somebody says, okay, I really just want to do this for myself, I'm more than happy to work Mm -hmm. with them. It's just, it's never panned out because their ultimate goal was to get the other person in. And since that other person didn't come in, they ended up not doing it. But if somebody was like, I am the spouse or whatever, this is what I'm dealing with, but I'm ready to work on me. I'm more than happy to work with that person for sure. Yeah.
1: I just wanted to make, I just... I wanted to make sure that 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 would be open for someone like you said, since you're an addiction, yeah, you know, coach versus just someone in in my shoes. But it yeah. is helpful and beneficial to them. I, I
2: have well. clients that have come to me just because they're addicted to sugar. Yeah, you know, they don't feel like that. There's no other substances involved. Um, but really, ultimately, what I help people do is help them to break you know, unhealthy patterns and empower them to learn the language of their own body so that they can start to identify what do I need and how do I take action to fulfill my own needs, which is a huge part of being a person who is in, in love with, with or taking care of somebody that has an addiction, separating yourself in however way you need to do that mm-hmm. with a healthy boundary to take care of you, you know, that's huge
0: absolutely and so being mindful of the fact that it is individual Mm -hmm. and that each person's body is different Mm -hmm. and that that's the challenge the fun challenge for you of the work that you do being mindful of that individual nature of this let's talk in general terms though about what kinds of foods we need to prioritize um, if we are trying to improve our mood or um, where's a good place to start? Should we talk about neurotransmitter regeneration and like what that is?
2: Yeah, we can. So this and this goes back to the art and science piece, right? Like there, the the art is figuring out what an individual person needs, but the science shows us clearly okay. what what if, what a handful of things are that people need to do. And so, um, to, before we segue into that, the reason um, you know that the pause protocol exists. Pause post-acute withdrawal syndrome is because there is a framework, going back to everything I've already shared about the blood sugar imbalance and the nutrient deficiencies, that framework um, will work for everyone and on everyone's level, they will need to customize it um, okay. accordingly, but the framework is really important. So in the simplest of terms, when we eat a piece of protein, so we eat a scrambled egg, we eat a piece of chicken, we eat a, you know, some ground beef, turkey, whatever... That protein goes into our body. There's a digestive process that takes place that breaks that protein down into individual molecules called amino acids. A lot of times I start to see people's heads shaking, like when I'm in group work and stuff, and it's always like the beefy guy. And I'm like, ah, yeah, you've heard of amino acids before, right? And he's like, yeah, it helps you build muscle, you know. <laughs> That's how people usually, you know, the, and, and those are the branch chain amino acids. So when we eat a scrambled egg, our body uses some of those molecules to build muscle. It also does that to grow hair, grow nails, to grow new liver cells, whatever you need to do. But the other side of this coin, the really important piece for this conversation is that there are very specific amino acids Mo- molecules, single molecules that our body uses to create our neurotransmitters. So it's almost like these are the key ingredients to the recipe for serotonin. Serotonin is the happy hormone that helps us to feel content and, and satisfied with life. It gives us a sense of well being. It gives us the ability to laugh at jokes. If we want to make serotonin, we have to provide our body with the building blocks to be able to do that. We cannot. Pull serotonin down from the sky. We can't whip up a magic batch of it. We've got to have the ingredients and those are amino acids, specifically tryptophan. It is one single amino acid that turns into serotonin. Now the conversion process is more complicated than I'm making it sound and there's other factors that need to be considered, but that's the first step. You have to give your body the ingredients that it needs to be able to make serotonin if you don't do that if you're protein deficient which the far majority of americans but then on top of that the people that are in recovery the far majority of them are missing getting sufficient protein so that's the first step
0: tryptophan if if you were to ask a hundred people <laughs> to name an amino acid that's probably mm-hmm. the only one that many of them would be able to name mm-hmm. And it's because it gets a bad rap. And you've explained this to me. People talk about, uh, on Thanksgiving, an hour after they eat, how they need to sleep on the couch... And it's because of that tryptophan they <laughs> But that's not why they have to sleep on the couch. Explain that, please. There's
2: more tryptophan in bacon and chicken than there is in turkey. Um, the reason people are falling asleep on the couch is because they, their brains have been carb overloaded. Mm-hmm. They've had three servings of mashed potatoes and gravy and grandma's biscuits and pumpkin pie and all of these things we normally have. And the brain, carbs put the brain to sleep, especially simple carbs and too much of it. So, yeah, it's a total misnomer. Um if you were to take tryptophan in supplement form it does it may have that sleepy effect some people actually take it for sleep but in in as a component of food that is not true that's a myth <laughs>
0: So it's a one to one relationship with serotonin and I don't I just don't want to scare people off to thinking oh well I got to give up on serotonin cuz I don't want to you know, be be tired because I ate turkey. <laughs> right. Um, that that's that's a that's a myth.
2: Well, a lot of people don't know that serotonin converts to melatonin around halfway through the day, which is the primary hormone that does help us fall asleep. So,
0: but that's a naturally occurring mm-hmm. yeah. thing. That's, that's how we're supposed to get yes. tired at the end of the day.
2: Exactly.
0: Exactly. What are the other? So, when we talk about neurotransmitters, that's a big for me. It was a big intimidating, daunting word when I first heard it. You've mentioned serotonin. I think the one that gets written about the most, that people are most familiar with, is dopamine. Yeah. Can you talk about what the, you know, we don't want to get in the weeds and get yeah. all nerdy. Um, yeah. I know you and I, not, I like I mean, you and I like to do that sometimes. <laughs> you and I like to do that sometimes. You want to nerd out. But um, what are the neurotransmitters? Yeah. And um, it is, do they all come from protein? Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, so it all boils down to the fact that we've got over 100 different neurotransmitters, but there's only four that are in relationship to the mood. um, mood. We call them the mood-regulating neurotransmitters. It's serotonin, dopamine, GABA, and the endorphins. Serotonin, dopamine, and GABA are made from a single amino acid. Endorphins, on the other hand, are made from many amino acids. So when I'm talking to somebody that's in recovery from an opiate addiction, we talk about the incredible importance of eating a very wide variety of proteins so get your salmon get your chicken get your turkey get all these different things because they actually need um a ton like the uh, endorphins are like you know 31 chains of amino acids so um yeah so those those are the four mood regulating neurotransmitters and they each have a slightly different function
0: when you say protein you say the generic word protein but then you keep talking about animal sources yeah Does the protein need to come from animal sources?
2: So, no. Um, But my personal opinion, and I feel like the data backs this up, is that if you are willing to eat animal protein, if you already eat animal protein, that is the best bang for your buck. If you think about the difference between a bean, for example, and um, a piece of sirloin steak. When you eat a piece of sirloin steak, that is just like, the far majority of that is protein. And so and your body identifies that really well and knows exactly how to break it down and there's actually a whole process in the body that is really efficient at doing that. Um, and you're going to get a, a lot of amino acids that way. If you were to just eat beans to try to get your protein that way, Yes, beans have protein, but it also has a lot of fiber and carbs and, like, you need that other stuff for other reasons. But if you're specifically trying to increase your protein intake... The best way to do that is to eat as much animal, lean animal protein as you can. Um, it's just the most efficient way to do it. And if you're trying to subsist on a vegan or vegetarian diet, it's okay and you can get there. But it's, if you think about the foods that you're primarily eating are not pure protein. They're made up of all these other components. You're going to get fuller faster, which is going to prevent you potentially from reaching those higher protein targets that you would need to get for the neurotransmitter regeneration. Is it impossible? No. It's not impossible. Is it harder?
0: Yes. When I first tried to get sober, well, well, not first tried, but when I tried to get sober for this, this time, so about six years ago, I remember thinking as a part of this, I want to get as healthy as possible. And when I thought of healthy and I thought of nutrition before I met anybody as wonderful as you, I thought vegan. I thought that because that's kind of At least then, I guess I don't know what the most popular way of thinking is now. But at that time, that was the, you know, it's drastic. It's difficult for someone who's been a meat eater their whole life. But if I really want to do this, and there are a lot of us who, when we're entering early recovery, we want to throw the kitchen sink at it. We want to do everything humanly possible, go a million miles an hour toward our sobriety. Because I had had relapses, and I had had failed attempts, and I didn't want to do that again. So I was going to do everything I could think of to get and stay sober. So for me, uh, where it related to nutrition, I said, well, I've got to become vegan because that's the way to do it. And what I'm hearing from you, not only what I'm hearing from you, but what I experienced once I met you and I, I started eating the way you're describing, is I was actually making it harder on myself to, to improve my mood, to stabilize and improve my mood, and to regenerate those neurotransmitters. Do you run into that a lot? Do you run into people that are like, hey, you're a nutrition specialist, I'm vegan. I'm doing the right thing, right?
2: (laughs) I run into it occasionally, you know. Um, This question always comes up, and so I think people that know me loosely uh, know that I'm a big advocate of animal protein for that reason. Um, But, I mean, if you just think about it, like, okay, I'm an alcoholic. I'm removing alcohol from my life. Let's just throw something else huge on top of there and, like, remove meat. I mean, I'm already dealing with a sense of restriction. Why would I want to... Um, now, compound that sense of restriction, while I'm also taking away the most beneficial food that's going to help me, re, you know, regenerate my neurotransmitters. It makes no sense to me. And so, when somebody comes to me and says, "Hey, I, I've been vegan for ten years. My mood is awesome. My recovery is great. Whatever," I'm like, "Dude." awesome like you do you. you do you buddy and i am so fully behind that but when somebody has not lived that lifestyle and wants to do it now because they heard some blogger you know or some youtube guy say this is what you need to do in recovery it's it's a borderline infuriating for me because <laughs> i'm like dude if you're just if you want to talk about your personal experience that's amazing but if you're pushing the idea that being a vegan or a vegetarian for people in recovery is what everybody should do that is mind-boggling to me so um, There are so yeah. many things about, <laughs> there's that
0: <laughs> there's so many things about recovery and alcoholism mm-hmm. and addiction in general that are just so counterintuitive. And so I think this falls into that category. You're thinking healthy, healthy, healthy. Yeah. I gotta become vegan. No, that's actually the exact opposite yeah. of again, I like I really like the way you describe that. You do you if that's your thing. But if you're trying to figure out what your thing is, that's probably just like intermittent fasting is probably really bad for someone that's entering early sobriety. Yeah. Uh, going vegan is probably going to have the opposite of the effect and it's, it's like a I juice mean,
2: cleanse. People mm-hmm. will ask me about that. I'm like, "No, that's the worst thing you could do." Well, well, I remember
1: like just kind of going back into our history of how long I've known Kelly and I was it was probably about right when you were trying to stop smoking and you were just learning about nutrition cuz that's how old our boys yeah, are now. I know. Um, and then I remember us sitting at an indoor pool and you were talking about all you had learned and Matt was early into, you know, early in recovery for this last time. And I was like, there's got to be a way we're going to connect with this because what you were telling me about nutrition and he was trying to like, I'm going to be healthy. I'm only going to eat salads. <laughs> and I'm like that, that's going to make you miserable because you've not been like that. And I, in my mind, I didn't know anything about it, but I was like, oh, well this is just putting a big challenge in my ability to shop and cook oh, because yeah. I am the primary provider of those and then I had to like cater to Matt's new, you know, vegan and I tried it for a while but I remember thinking, "Oh, I got to get Kelly to talk to Matt about this because this is <laughs> this is just not going to yeah. work for him. Like you need your meat. You you know, you needed that stuff." Mm-hmm. And I am so thankful that we have learned about that and how That I see now that that building block of the addiction nutritionist diet that you recommended for Matt early on um, really did lay a great foundation, and it changed a lot of our perceptions about how we eat at home even now. And what you know, and he still maintains a lot of those same foods mm-hmm. um and I love that you were you were very high on protein because I think it's really helped our kids too, with their concentration, mm-hmm. and because you know kids go quick carb, quick carb, yeah. quick carb. So now, like, we have a lot more protein snacks for them to eat on. I love that. I think it's really helped the family as a whole.
2: And that's what I've heard other people say as well. Once somebody in the family starts doing it and it catches on to everybody else, oftentimes because they see the stabilization that comes with it, it, they have that effect. Like, kids are doing better in school. There's less irritability and mood swings in the house, and it can have a really far-reaching effect.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and what's nice about this, if you are the loved one, and if you are, as Sherry said, you know I, I know this might sound sexist or overly traditional, but sh- sh- Sherry is the the shopper and the mostly the cooker because um, I like it too because you I like mean, it. That's kind of a background. I do line. my <laughs> share. I do my share. <laughs> of you, do you do breakfast. You do breakfast. But if that's your role in your family and you are not the drinker, you're the loved one who's got this dysregulated nervous system, and you're living with the drinker, you can inject this you know, uh, eating routine. I don't want to call it, a, I never want to call it a diet, this no. nutrition plan yeah. this
1: lifestyle. into your yeah.
0: family without them even knowing it yeah. because it's not like going vegan. You're still eating meat. You're still eat. you're eating a lot of vegetables. And I want to talk about that. Um, but it, this is so easy to do without it being disruptive or you're, you can't fix your alcoholic spouse. You can't make them get sober, but you can, Help them to eat this way without them even knowing that you're doing something specific.
1: Yeah. And then you're helping everybody else in the family. That's right. Feel better. And yourself. The anxiety. And yourself. And, yeah, and yourself. And yourself. You and yourself, yourself. Like because of the high anxiety state. Because we know it trickles down to the kids.
0: Yep. So based on everything I'm hearing, when I hit two o'clock today, it's time for me to start eating. I'm going to find the nearest McDonald's drive-through I can. <laughs> <right>? That's <the> good <laughs> for you, Matt. <laughs> when Talk was about the
1: last time you went to McDonald's.
0: It's Ready. been a long time. Yeah. But no, talk about the importance. You, you, I think you said clean or lean proteins. Talk about the importance of where you're getting the proteins as opposed to standard American diet, McDonald's. Yeah gas you, know,
2: you gotta you gotta start where you can and so i wouldn't want somebody to listen to this and just think it's such a huge jump if they are kind of living on that standard american diet that we call the sad diet um you gotta you gotta start where you can so if you've just got some like high protein yogurt in the fridge or something you know and that's where you feel most comfortable that's where you start um but if you can figure out what I usually tell people, I take them through a process. but I usually tell them, and, and protein's the first place that we go, is let's just test that out, this out. What are your, what are your three to five favorite proteins, right? And usually they'll be like, oh well, I really love hamburgers and you know something else. And so we go, okay, let's start there. Like you you love ground beef, you love hamburgers. How, you know how many times a week can we get that into your you know whatever, um, and and that's where we start. So. If, if you can move in the direction of, of lean meats like turkey like I love bison I eat bison multiple times a week um, I absolutely love it um, you know shredded chicken whatever in the and one of the only reasons for that is that healthy fat is really important too and if you're eating conventionally raised beef um, that's say you know 85 15 or whatever like it's fine it's fine right a lot of us do that. Um, but unfortunately cows that are raised in these conventional ways, their fat is a little bit toxic. So if you're buying conventionally raised meats, try to go leaner. If you are eating grass fed beef all the time, then you don't need to worry about, um, it being lean so much. Um, but just, you know, Getting that good, strong animal protein, whether it's bacon, whether it's eggs. whether Eggs is really one of the best places you could get it from because it's so highly nutritious. Um, that's just the best thing for the body and the brain to heal.
0: Yeah. I heard or read somewhere, and it's probably from you, but it was long enough ago that I can't remember exactly where I heard or read this, that our brain cells are like 70% fat. And so... We all grew up in a time where for over a decade, the trend was low fat diets. And so if I understand that <laughs> properly, we were basically starving our bodies of the thing that our brain is made up of. I, I think it's terrible that the word fat applies to the trouble area in our midsection that we're trying to work on and also a component in food that's actually really necessary and helpful. Because everybody just naturally thinks, if I want to get less fat, I have to eat less fat. Can you talk about how that is not right? And, and I mean, you, you, you kind of led me into this question where you're talking about if you're eating clean, good proteins, then avoiding fat is not the way you want to go.
2: Mm-hmm. It's quite tragic. I think that, uh, I, I don't even, I can't think of another word to even describe it other than tragic but I and I remember this showing up in my own life with my own mom watching TV and this and that and like the snack wells coming out and everyone saying low fat this and low fat that it was depriving us you know of of such an important nutrient our brains are 60% fat if you were to take your brain out of your skull and plop it down on the table and start poking around it'd be like butter or like a soft butter or jello consistency it's mostly fat I heard a stat yesterday um, on a podcast that I just love. That I think they said that your brain is 25% cholesterol. And that's the other thing, right? Is like, ah, oh, cholesterol, the evil villain that clogs your arteries. Your body makes cholesterol. Everybody's body makes cholesterol. Why would your body be producing something so toxic if it didn't have health benefits to you? Um,
0: This is why eggs have gone out of fashion and into fashion and out of fashion and into fashion because of the cholesterol concerns, right? And it
2: doesn't mean we should be, like, fast and loose with it, right? Like, I'm not going to go taking shots of cholesterol because (laughs) I, you know, but your your body needs it. Your sex hormones are made from cholesterol. It's really important. There's a lot of data to show that when someone's cholesterol is too low, they become homicidal and suicidal, Um, and so there was, I, this, I have no stats to back this up, but it is purely experiential. And I feel like back in the eighties, everyone's mom started going crazy. I don't know what it was. But it was like the generation of moms who started taking all the antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications and were having mood swings and they were looking for all of these things to make their lives better. And I can't help but notice that we tried to pull fat out of their diets.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm
1: sorry, Sherry. No, I was taking a drink of water when she said that and it just made me giggle because my stepdad and I would be like, oh
2: my God, what do you think she's going to
1: be like when she comes up the driveway? Like, we would be I mean, like, what kind of mood is she in? Because, I mean, my mom had a whole hormonal thing go along, but, yeah, like, she was trying to stay slim and mm-hmm. fit and, yeah, Everyone yeah had a diet, yeah. On, the TV diet and stuff. on the counter.
0: well, and so when we got into the processed food and we pulled the fat out of everything, we replaced it with sugar. sugar, which is, which I mean, I know one of the things that I love the most about you, Kelly, is that you're not an all or nothing kind of person. You're not as black and white as I, I am terrible about that. But you would never say you need to be zero sugar. No. That's not the way you look at it. It's not reasonable. Yeah. And yeah. but but if we're looking at the, the the things that make up our food, the thing the ingredients inside the ingredients of our food, added sugar is one that we want to do our best to avoid, is that fair?
2: Yeah, I mean the like we could we could do like a 4-hour podcast on like the politics and uh, economics of, of how this has played out because it's incredibly fascinating stuff. Um, the American Heart Association recommends that um, women keep their daily sugar intake or under around 25 grams and 38 grams for men. I am much more oh. <clears throat> on the conservative side where I think 15 to 20 might be reasonable. And that's added sugar. We're not talking about bananas, right? Oh. We're talking about added sugar. Um, but <sighs> sugar consumption It's out of control. I mean, I have women that come to me... And they're like, I think I'm eating too much. And I'm like, all right, let's take a look. And we have them do a food diary. And it, sugar's not the first place we go. First place we go is protein. We look at healthy fats because you're basically displacing the sugar at that point. It becomes mm. easier to remove it from the diet if you're just naturally including things that crowd it out. And then we look at it later. But they're coming to me logging 150 grams of sugar a day. And if you look at some of these kids that are just consuming all of these sodas and sugary cereals and whatever, you start adding it up. It's insane and you know, the American Heart Association has had to put guidelines on it because they are, like, sort of acknowledging that it's actually the sugar that creates the inflammation and the damage to the blood vessels, which is the underlying reason why cholesterol, which your body makes, is coming in and getting stuck in those cracks, mm. which is leading to cardiovascular disease and things like that. Um, and so there's kind of been some, like, loose acknowledgement of that lately, which is good. It means we're moving in the right direction. But, yeah, if you want to live a long, healthy life where you are not experiencing cognitive decline, um, you know, and those sorts of things that it's definitely an area that you need to look at. And the first thing you do is just start reading the labels. That's all you have to do when you're about to put something in your mouth, flip it over or Google it and just start to create awareness because some people are shocked. Yeah. Yeah, Like peanut butter, even natural peanut butter. And I'm not
1: going to name drop I don't want any, I mean, I don't think any big companies are listening, but, yeah, like, it'll say natural, and then there's palm oil and sugar mm-hmm. in your peanut butter. Yeah. Well, that's not natural.
0: <laughs> yeah, natural It is... comes from
1: corn cherry. What yeah. are you talking about? I mean, natural must it's be like, an unregulated natural.
0: word. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: you know, like, but you're right. Just flip it over, read the label. Yeah. Let, Check it out.
0: Let's talk about how this sugar Peter thing... Peter oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for not name-dropping. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about how this sugar topic relates directly to blood sugar and relates directly to what we're talking about here, uh, recovery nutrition. One of the examples that I've heard you give many times is if we're trying to keep our blood sugar regulated, because what what happens with blood sugar is it actually goes up first, right? And then there, if, if you spike your blood sugar, there's a insulin release that drops it down low and that's when you get you move from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala and you're in fight or flight and you end up in the liquor store parking lot right yeah so when you talk about cereals and the standard american diet it's very common for us to eat a high carb high sugar breakfast and just start our day off on the wrong foot right and end up in this blood sugar spike and drop cycle is that is that a commonplace that you find people that come to you that are are looking for help uh, in their early recovery is this a common place that you have to start
2: Yeah, it's definitely foundational um, and people typically don't know um, or understand the relationship between what they're eating and blood sugar spikes and drops and how that directly correlates to mood um, and and which part of the brain that you're operating out of. And so we give a kid cereal, send him off to school. First of all, he's already gotten a carb overload from that. So now his brain is falling asleep and he can't concentrate as well. Um, But he's probably now going to be moody and he's probably going to be hungry in an hour when he's stuck in math class and like all of those things that can happen. And so I often have people that say, "Oh, you know, I have special K or whatever, you know, quote unquote healthy cereal is for breakfast or I have oatmeal." And it's like, "Okay, well what what's in the oatmeal?" And it's like, "Well, I put, you know, maple syrup in there, or honey or whatever, you know, whatever they're doing." Um and but they think it's because they had the oatmeal like it's all okay, but what they're ultimately doing is You know, shooting their blood sugar sky high, which what goes up must come down. Mm -hmm. When it drops into that place we call the danger zone, that's where it literally functions like a switch in the brain. You have now just flipped the switch on the wall. You were in your prefrontal cortex, which is the rational human part of the brain. You're operating out of that lizard brain is purely instinctual which communicates with the memory center of the brain quite effectively so right my blood sugar has dropped what do i do now right like there's not even a thought process that happens it just goes more sugar or it goes alcohol or it goes do whatever you need to do to get this thing fixed right
0: so as this relates again to recovery traditional kind of 12-step programs traditional recovery methods have for a long time talked about well, I mean, if you go to an AA meeting, it, there's there's sugar on the counter there to help you get through it. But th- there has traditionally been the mindset, the belief, the advice that if you're having an alcohol craving in the evening, go get a Snickers bar or go get a bowl of ice cream. So that relates directly to what we're talking about, about blood sugar regulation. But my understanding is that feeding that craving with sugar also, is going to make that craving keep coming back, and alcohol and sugar live in a similar place as it relates to neural pathways. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
2: this is where those programs and though that education just really falls short because I I am a believer in harm reduction, right? And like and. It's, there's a, a detox center here in Denver that I see a lot of people um, come out of and they're always talking about how it's like Disneyland for food when you go to this detox center it's, it is anything and everything you want it is all packaged processed whatever you want a Yoo-Hoo, you want some kool-aid what it's there and and to some degree to some degree that's okay like you are in an acute critical state if you if you want to eat a, freaking bag of gummy worms like go ahead and do it but the problem lies where they just keep perpetuating that this is the solution this is not a long-term solution it is a very acute um, situation so in those very very early stages if that's what you need to do because you literally feel like those are your only choices then go ahead and have a snickers bar but at some point preferably as early on as possible you want to not create a whole another habit loop in your brain because that is we are creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. If every time I have a craving, I have a Snickers bar or whatever fill-in-the-blank it is, you're just creating a whole nother bad habit for yourself. And recovery at its core is healing all the different parts of ourselves and creating new healthy habits in all of those little pie slices of our life. And nutrition needs to be a foundation, a foundational piece of that. And so very early on, like I said, as early as possible... If you can have the awareness to go, all right, I'm experiencing a craving I'm experiencing that feeling like you talked about earlier of like I just need to have this thing. what else can I do in this situation now and what else can I do to create a situation where this doesn't keep happening right And it you know a lot of it goes back to protein and the pause protocol but um, yeah, the sooner you can you can stop that cycle from being, started or break it, if you're already in it, the better off you're going to be for sure.
0: Let's talk about the PAUSE protocol. As you said earlier, PAUSE stands for post-acute withdrawal syndrome, but those four letters have a different meaning in the protocol that you've developed called the PAUSE protocol. Can you, can you talk about it?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, (laughs) this one's going to throw me for a loop because I don't remember the acronym exactly, but um, the pause protocol at its core is kind of the science of nutrition, like we talked about earlier, making sure that you're getting good quality proteins, that you're getting um, healthy fats that you are getting, uh, the majority of your carbs from complex carbs. It's looking at blood sugar imbalances and what leads to that. So not only eating those foods that we talked about, but like food sensitivities is a big area that you have to look at as well. We're not talking about allergies. We're talking about sensitivities, because if you are consistently eating a food that you have a sensitivity or an intolerance to that triggers that same, uh, stress response in the body where it kicks you to that back part of the brain. Um, But really at its core, um, you know, and we've, we've talked about moving away from that reactive lifestyle is the self-awareness that you need. And so using, you know, the word pause literally as a pause, right?
0: P-A-U-S-E.
2: Yeah. Like as I'm going through my day and becoming as aware as possible when I'm in that moment, when I'm at that decision point, that fork in the road of, oh, I'm going to give you a fantastic example of this. And maybe it's not fantastic, but it blows my mind every time I think about it. I've been practicing this self-awareness piece in my life for a long time, and it constantly reveals things to me. And not that long ago, I realized that I was smelling my hair like like a weird kind of automatic thing, and I would mostly do it when I was driving. And so I started to go, Kelly, what are you doing, right? Okay, we're going to use our self-awareness here and figure out why you're smelling your hair and it was, I have figured it out very quickly after the 20 years of being a chronic smoker, if I was getting in the car and going somewhere, wherever it was, work job interview, meet up with a friend, I would instinctively mm. smell my hair to see if it smelled like smoke. I haven't had a puff of a cigarette in 8 years and I'm still smelling my hair when Talk I drive. Talk about habit, huh? Right? It's, it's fascinating but when I stopped, because I told myself I'm going to examine all areas of my life and realized I was doing this thing and I figured out why I was doing it. I was able to stop. I just stopped smelling my hair. A couple of times I would go to grab it and I'd be like, I don't, you know, like you don't need stop. you stop. I don't, don't need to smell it. I don't smoke anymore. Um
0: And it looks like you have showered in the last 8. Years. I, I actually
2: have. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but just simple things like that of like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? How come every time I think I need electrolytes, I grab for a sports drink. Like, is that what I really need? Maybe I just need water. You know what I mean? Like, did I actually work out that hard? Like, uh, you know, how come every time I feel stressed, I want red wine? Like those kinds of types of things, like figuring out what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And that ultimately the taking that pause and not being so reactive and then responding in those situations with something that will actually fulfill the need. So becoming aware of the need, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, I need a nap, I need a snack, I need community, I need time with a friend, any of those things. And then you can, once you identify the need, then you can figure out what is the actual thing that's going to fill this need. Um, And so it's it's a huge shift from moving from reactionary to responding.
0: It's a great tool. We talk about having tools in the sobriety toolkit. But again, this applies not only to people that are trying to break a direct addiction but to people that are living with addiction as well because they're reactionary as well and you know we talk about when you are trying to break when you are the drinker and you're trying to break an addiction you these are the things you need to do when you feel a craving coming on eat something reach out and talk to somebody uh, don't live in isolation there but this is another thing to add to that toolkit Try to have that self-awareness. Think about what it is that you really need, not the thing that you're reactively thinking you need. And so w- to get through early sobriety, it takes a lot of tools in the toolkit. Mm. And thinking of this as a valuable one of them, this self-assessment, the self-awareness, um, I just think it's really, really powerful. It's, and it's been like – I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. I don't smell my hair. I probably will now for about a week after this conversation. <laughs> But, but I'm sure that there's something that I do that's very reactionary like that as well, and, and this is a great tool to, to break away from that. One last topic, and I'm not going to segue to it very well, because when we were chatting before we started recording, this is something that, that we suggested that we work into the conversation. And I wrote the word disconnect, but I don't remember what that means. So did we really yeah. talk about that? Or could Enough you work talk. Into the we got to get
1: to
2: the meat and potatoes of that
0: the thing. Yeah. What's the, what's the disconnect?
2: Well, you know, we, it, and I think we have taught, we've talked around it a lot. And okay. it's basically just that when we are, when we're living in active use or we are living as the, the loved one, right? Um, there, there's a disconnect because we are operating out of that reactive state of our brain, that amygdala, that lizard brain. And so, um, it, when I work with people that are really early in recovery, one of the things that they have a hard time recognizing is what does true thirst feel like? What does true hunger feel like? Am I experiencing a craving for a substance or am I experiencing a craving for something else? And so there's a disconnect between, um, you know, how we're acting in the world and, and what our body really needs. And so, you know, using hunger as an example, Sometimes if, if you're in a reactive state and your brain goes, I'm hungry, you just grab for something. You go through the McDonald's drive-thru, mm-hmm. you grab the gas station food, you grab the Mountain Dew. You're, because you're just reacting, there was no thought put into that, right? Maybe it was a habit or you just knew you needed something. And so helping people to recover from that disconnect is just doing exactly what we just talked about. Taking the pause, creating a self-awareness, and so that they can come back into their bodies and their brain and their needs can be reconnected with um, what the actual needs are, if that makes sense. When
0: we're in early sobriety, we are dealing with emotions for the first time for many of us since we were 17 years old when we found alcohol. Mm. Is that the kind of thing, you know, you're dealing with emotions, you can't drink and make it go away anymore because you've given up alcohol is that the kind of thing that would create this disconnect I'm uncomfortable because you know I'm I'm dealing with stress at work or I'm having an uncomfortable conversation I can't drink to make this go away so I'm going to eat yeah. um is that is that what you, kind of an example of what you're talking about when you're talking about the disconnect
2: Yeah I think so I think you just are not aware of your own needs or how to fulfill yeah. them
0: Yeah you know It's fascinating Kelly, this is wonderful. I will never again recommend that anyone listen to episode four, because <laughs> episode 157 is way way better. Yeah you you've um, you've learned a lot in the last few years, obviously, but you're just so comfortable talking about it. I tell you this all the time. I wish this was TV instead of video instead of audio because you just light up when you talk about this stuff. Um, this you're clearly following your life's passion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's neat to see that when somebody is doing the thing that they should be doing. So thank you so much for joining us on the intoxicated podcast. Before we go, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work or to reach you?
2: Yeah, it would really just be to go to the website, um, theaddictionnutritionist.com, which um, should be updated within the next couple weeks, and emailing me at kelly at theaddictionnutritionist.com is just always going to be the best way to reach me, and I entertain whatever questions people have, and I do free consultations, so if anybody just wants to talk for a few minutes, you know, we can hop on the phone and see if I can help them. And sometimes it's just answering a question and sometimes it's working with me. Um, So I'm very open to all of that, but that's for sure the best way to reach me. And thank you so so much for having me. Your questions have been really amazing. So I appreciate that.
0: Well, as I said, when we were in a little break a minute ago, uh, the questions are easier when I know the topic so well, and I know the topic so well because of all that you've taught me. So you've lived it and lived it as well. Yeah. Kelly, thanks so much for being here. You're a dear friend and a wealth of knowledge. We appreciate you. Thank you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love
1: or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out
0: at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety,